All right, today we are reading in 2 Samuel, we're reading chapter 9. It's on page 149 in the blue Bibles that are under your chair. So if you didn't bring a Bible and uh, you'd like to read along with us, please use that. And when you're done, if you don't have a Bible at home, that one is definitely yours to take. So I'm Andrew. Um, I do help serve in RCs as well as men's Bible. Uh, So if you have questions about either of those, find me after service. Assuming we've had time now to get to page 149, I'll read 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, that you shall eat at my table always." And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth Your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Mr. Elder. How are you doing this morning? I am pumped to preach this. Uh, In your line of work, I don't know what it takes to sort of uh, test to see if somebody has it, but this passage right here, basically, if you can't teach this and you have no business being a pastor or in ministry in any way, shape, or form, because this is a, a condensed, maybe the most condensed, beautiful picture of the good news the Bible is trying to show us and tell us is all found in this tiny little story of a guy named David who we've been studying, and now this new guy who just popped on the scene, Mephibosheth, which is a mouthful, but it is going to be fun to walk through this. So if you're joining us for the first time, we've been walking through First and Second Samuel. It's been heavy. 
Chandler and I were thinking about Christmas and Advent, what to do, and he just said, just, it's been pretty heavy walking through all this. We got the wilderness, we got uh, God killing people for approaching his holiness in, a, in an impure way. It's just been a lot to digest and walk through. I just want to tell you, this week right here, this little chapter 9, is the best news we're going to have our entire time in First and Second Samuel. It's going to be a wonderful, it gets heavy again next week. Next week is David and Bathsheba. So this week is a moment where we get like, take a breath and enjoy some good news, some good stories. So David is called the king after God's own heart. And I'll just say it this way. This is David's highlight of his entire life. At no other moment does David act and move and be motivated like God, like he does in this passage here. He has points in his life and moments where it's like, I see why God picked him. And then we have lots of moments where it's like, gosh, he seems as bad or worse than Saul and you and I. But this moment right here is David's highlight. It's simply this. This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to walk through two things. The bad news of this story, and by extension, the bad news that we all sit in currently in this room, and the good news of this story And by God's grace and God's grace alone, the good news that some of us in this room, hopefully a lot of us, have already experienced. There's bad news and there's good news. And here's what we need. We need the Spirit to be able to help us hear both of those things. So I want to stop and just pause. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. Um, And I don't just do this just to do it. But I want to give us each space to ask God to open our ears to hear bad news and open our hearts in our ears to hear the good news this morning in a fresh way. God, thank you for hearing our prayers. You are going to speak in a fresh way, and we are going to receive the bad news. And God, you're going to speak in such a way that we're going to receive the good news today. And I pray that your spirit would surgically uh, bring both of those to each heart in this room the way you need to bring it for change to actually happen. So God, we love you. Be with us as we walk through this this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said... Amen. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to set us up just by walking through the first three verses. Like I said, this is the story of David. It's sort of this random, like David and Mephibosheth guy now. You know, David just became king. He brought the ark back into the land. He's in Jerusalem. Saul's dead. His kingdom is now about to take off. Uh, Next week, he's going to show that he's just as boneheaded and sinful and evil as the rest of the kings and what he does to Bathsheba. But this week is like, oh, what's happening? Chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read the first... uh, Two and a half verses or so. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Stop right there. So again, David's king. He's on his upward trajectory, he's in his early 30s, he's going to reign for 40 years, but he stops and he has this moment where he's like, I made a promise to a friend. This is like people that have been in military together and they make promises to each other. My dad or his buddy growing up, they made a promise that if either one of them won the lotto, they would split it in half. That promise is still going today, so if Dave Biles out there, wherever he is, wins the lottery, 
My dad gets half of it. They made a promise. And that's what we see with David. There's a promise that's been made to somebody to show the kindness of God to this. And where's this promise? Here, if you reverse in the Bible a little bit, but it's out of 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is Jonathan, who is Saul's son. Saul, Jonathan, Mephibosheth. Jonathan and David, just a reminder, were best friends, like inseparable. I mean, think of your closest friend. This was Jonathan and David. They went to war together. They cried together. They hid in caves together. Jonathan saved David's life multiple times. And this is them towards the end where Jonathan knows it's not going to end well for me or for my dad, Saul. If I'm still alive, he's talking to David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. So David remembers that moment, that they made this promise that even though Saul was as evil as everyone said he was, and Jonathan was Saul's son, that David, if given the power, if given the chance, that he would treat his house with kindness. So David's saying, is there anyone left? Remember last week, Michael, Saul's daughter, is married to David, and God shuts her womb as a way to say there's no, not going to be any Sauline blood that comes into the house of David. There will be no king with any bloodline tied to Saul. But David says, but is there anyone left that I can fill out that promise that I made to my best friend, Jonathan? In the middle of verse 3, let's keep reading there. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king, this is David, said to him, where is he? And, David said, and Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekur, the son of Emiel at Lodabar. So stop right there. So there is somebody left. His name is Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan. Who is this guy? We skipped over this because we're not teaching through every single passage, but he's brought up earlier in the story. And it says, Saul is killed. Jonathan is killed. Back in Jonathan's house, he's got a son there named Mephibosheth. And his nurse, his nanny, knows that this house is a target now and they're going to come for him. So the nurse, the nanny, picks up this little boy, three or four years old, and runs, trying to get to safety. She falls, trips, he lands on his feet, and he's now crippled, it says, in both feet. To what extent, we don't know, but he is crippled because as his dad dies in battle, he knows that he is now an enemy of the new king. He doesn't know this. The people taking care of him, and they run. He falls. He is now crippled in his feet. That is Mephibosheth. That is not a good place to be. This is bad news. This is why I said very simply we're going to walk through bad news. All the bad news is tied up in this person Mephibosheth. We got a slide up there simply says the bad news just for you note takers. My wife's a note taker. <laughs> Write that down. This is bad news. You don't want to be Mephibosheth. This is not good. Why? A few things. He comes from the line of Saul. He's of the line that is now considered evil and a threat to the kingdom. Just like every human now born, the way the Bible would talk of us born of a woman, which is all of us, you were born of your original father, Adam. In sin did your mother conceive you. And that does not mean the moment of conception there was sin going on. It's saying we are all now born with this genetic disposition, this nature about us that is sinful. We are from the wrong line. Adam is who we come from. And Mephibosheth knows, I come from Saul. I'm from the wrong line. And more than that, he lives in Lodabar. It's like, what is it? So David is in Jerusalem. 
the city of peace, on a throne, in a castle, ruling. A young crippled man is in a place called Lodabar, which simply means nowhere place. It's like, which one of those do you want to be? Saul's grandson in a nowhere place or in the city of peace with the king. And Mephibosheth is on the wrong side of history in this moment. This is bad news. What else? He is crippled in his legs. At the end, it calls him lame in his feet, which that's not the language we use today. Describe special needs issues, but they're just saying he is incapable of walking or being of service to the king. And then just to like God's final like, let me just paint a banner over this. Mephibosheth, the name means out of the mouth comes shame. So it's like this guy in a nowhere place, crippled in his feet, just overflowing in obvious public shame. This is Mephibosheth. You say, this doesn't seem like the news is very good. I know we got to start with the bad news. It is very bad for Mephibosheth. But here's what we have to do as Christians in this room. And if you're not a Christian yet, you will at some point do. As you read the Bible, you have to start to insert yourself into the story. And now you're being presented with an opportunity to see yourself in the life of Mephibosheth, who lives in a nowhere place, is full of shame, and incapable of being service, good service to the king. Why? Because sin has entered the world. That is the bad news. Mephibosheth is a picture of what happens in a sinful world. Stuff breaks. Nurses fall. People get crippled on their legs. People, all that is a result of sin. I remember when COVID kicked off, I asked my kids who were you know, younger than, who do you think's to blame for it? Why, why is COVID a thing? And my, they all had different theological answers. But Elijah, the theologian, said, because Adam sinned. And I said, that's exactly right. Anything bad in this world traces itself back to sin. And what we're looking at here is sin. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take this sin moment and sort of let it sit heavy on us for a tad bit longer. And I want us to do some work. What has sin done to us in this room as we pull out from this story? Here's the first thing sin has done to us in this room. Sin has separated us. David in the city of peace, the shameful one in the nowhere place. There is a separation between David and the descendant of Saul. There is a separation between God and mankind. Sin has separated. It has done a lot. It has wreaked havoc on the creation. The created order is messed up. Every human relationship is now messed up. Everything is messed up. But here's what we cannot forget in all this. Is also my relationship with God left to myself. If I define the terms, there is only separation. And we see that in the story. Sin has separated. I just want to... Kind of walk through a couple passages. I'm not going to show them on the screen, but if you want to write down just for reference, you can read them later. But Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Here's where the separation begins. And it, pre- it follows right after sin enters the world. Genesis 3 says this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. My favorite kid's book, uh, The Garden, the Curtain, the Cross. It says, because of your sin, you can't come in. Well, when did that happen? Genesis 3, God pushes them out of the garden because he doesn't want them to come and eat of the tree of life and live forever in this sinful nature. So he kicks them out and he guards it. The separation begins. Now fast forward. When does that separation end and how? Like that's the underlying question behind everyone trying to self-help, fix the world, fix world hunger, is like, how do we fix this problem? Well, just, you know, the end of the Bible, there's still a separation. Revelation 21, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this. This is God through the Apostle John describing heaven. The moment when Jesus Christ come back, comes back, sets up heaven on earth, and we get to live with him forever, those of us who have placed our faith in him. But just in, even in that description, there is still a separation. He says this, verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. This is heaven. They will bring into the glory, that's anyone who is there, and the honor of the nations. There will be work and fruitfulness and sowing and culture and business and organizations. It's going to be wonderful. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. A separation happened because of sin, and that separation is still there at the end of the story. There is a separation between God and man. God and some of you in this room. There was a guy that came to the first service, was like, I don't know, I was having coffee, I felt like I should just come in this place. I guess quite a message, but here's what I have for you, buddy. There is a separation between God and man. The prophet Isaiah summarizes it this way in Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, meaning God could do whatever he wants, that it cannot save, or his ear deaf that he cannot hear. But then Isaiah, I just picture him like standing on a podium talking to his people. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not here. How bad is the bad news? It's bad. The reason why God is not here in person right now is there is a separation between God and his creation. There's been a magical, beautiful, restorative person named Jesus who has started to fix that problem. But those in this room just know what has sin done? It has separated you from God. Now, here's the question, the follow-up. Okay, I'm separate from God. Like some of us are walking through family dynamics, and I'm in that as well, and there's a separation between family members. Well, how bad is it? How, what's it going to take to fix this? What's it going to take to fix God? And man, how, how, what can man do? Here's what I want to just tell you. Man, you can do nothing. Woman, you can do nothing. Here's the second bad news, is we are crippled and unable to fix it. That's how bad sin is. Like how, it's not a matter of at one moment I just have an aha and I turn and I get my senses and I can fix this. The Bible is abundantly clear that sin has made it impossible for us to ever fix this problem. 
If we're to insert ourselves in the story, I want us to just picture we are Mephibosheth. We were on the wrong side of history and we are crippled and we are unable to stand up on our own two feet to walk back to the king to present to him any sort of good works for him to receive us. The picture the Bible gives us is Mephibosheth. We are on the ground, incapable. And this is just a great analogy story that shows us the gospel. But all throughout, wherever you see sin talked about, it just hammers this point down. Like, it's bad. It's really, really bad. Here's one of the categories uh, the biblical authors would use. Slavery. How bad is sin? Sin is like slavery. You are a slave to sin. Jesus says this in John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What can a slave do? Only what his master tells him to do. Who is the master of everyone in this world? Jesus would say, it's your sin, and it's got you shackled, and you are being led by your sin. Now, like, here's some obvious, I mean, people that deal with addiction and obvious things where their life, they're trying to get it back, like, that is an obvious picture for them that they live with daily. But there's other people, like, people-pleasing is your sin, it's way more subtle, it's cutesy, it really helps out in church, like we get a lot done through people pleasers, but that still is, <laughs> not on purpose, but you're still shackled to sin. You're a slave, you're incapable of breaking the shackles. The other language the Bible uses is you're blind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, again, I'm not going to put it, but if you want, write it down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Veiled is a covering over their eyes. In this case, the God of this world, that would be Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What is your non-Christian neighbor like right now? Maybe pleasant, maybe successful, may ask great questions, have a curious nature. But if they don't have Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, there is a blinding over your eyes that Satan has placed there that needs to be removed. You are incapable. We are incapable. We are Mephibosheth in this story. You're like, get to the good news. We'll get there. I'm not done yet with the bad news. <laughs> Ephesians 2, verse 1. This is Paul's summary statement. If I had to summarize life without Jesus, Paul says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you, in once you, in, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Paul, describe us apart from Christ. You were dead. So there's a slavery. Your eyes are blinded. And just to like make sure we're 100% clear on this, you're also dead before God. You can't alive in yourself to go and walk back towards God. Why? Because sin has crippled us to the point of making it incapable for any of us to go to God on our own. Like I just, I don't always do this because I think it gets people confused, but let's flip in our Bible just to get us one last summary statement, exclamation point. Go to Romans, please. Flip over. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. So this is Paul's like, greatest writing. It's one of the greatest letters this world has ever been given. He wrote it to the church in Rome. The first few chapters are him like really telling humanity their problem. In chapter 3, verse 10 through 18 is his summary statement of what sin has done to this world. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. End of statement. That is us. We are Mephibosheth. That's bad news. You're like, what do you, I read this article, who likes bad news first? And it's always the receivers. So just so you know, you really wanted to hear the bad news first. It's always the receivers, because they want to end on good news. We're going to get to the good news. But the bad news is, no one seeks God. The picture God has for us is a crippled man in a house. The king has to do the work to restore this relationship. Not the crippled, broken sinful one like you and I. Well, what is this good news? Here's the good news. Mephibosheth did not live under the reign of Saul. He lived under the reign of David now. And we get to see the good news portrayed in King David. So let's read verse 6 through verse 13 now and get to the good stuff. This is my favorite Bible story of all time. And we get to see where the story turns. And Mephibosheth, verse 6, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, exclamation point. And he said, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. That would be Mephibosheth. Verse 10, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. I'm going to give you workers. Shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, which means who is like the Lord. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. What is the good news coming from David? There is a king who makes promises and keeps his promises. There is a king who knows he has enemies, but he wants to go and bless and give to his enemies, not punish them or hurt them. This is good news. And there's good news that a king has an inheritance to give to an undeserving, crippled man of his enemy. This is good news for Mephibosheth. This is all very good and better than anything. What's the end game for Mephibosheth? To sit at the king's table always. Always. That is the good news. We have membership class going on right now, and I always ask this question the first week. It's simply, what is the good news? That's the word gospel. And 20% of the time, we get a wrong answer. And I don't like publicly shame them. But here's how answers go bad when you answer that simple question. 
What's the good news that Christianity provides? The second somebody starts writing and they start to veer from God has done this, God has done this, God has done this, to anything resembling or sounding like, and I should, and I could, and I will, and I will, and I'll be worth. Anytime you shift from what the king has done to what any of us can or will or should do, you have left the good news, the gospel. That is not good news. That is religion. That is self-help. You can get that in a million different varieties, but what you get in the Bible is the gospel. Amen? Amen. What God has done. And in it, we see it. what the king has done. What has the king done for us? In this story that we see David acting towards Mephibosheth. Here's the first thing. What's the king done for us? He has graciously loved us. What's David's motivation in all this? If you look at the text, there's one word used to describe his motivation. We'll just walk through. It'll be on the screen. Verse 1, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Like Kindness is a good word. I want my kids to be kind, but... Yeah, it's not the best word, but it's the word we have. Verse 3. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So Jonathan has some kindness in him that's motivating him. Verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What is David's motivation? According to this passage, it's kindness. However, I want to show you the first moment where God ever sort of sticks his head out and gives his own bio and describes himself. It's to Moses, and this is how he describes himself in Exodus. The Lord passed before him, that being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the word for kindness that is used in this. The Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. David has this hesed, this hesed, this hesed. What is God like? He's got this hesedness. What is this hesedness? It's steadfast love. It's gracious love that was promised before the foundation of the world that is completely tied to the nature and character of God. There is no greater relational knot that you can have tied around you than the hesed love of God. Like, I'm just thinking through the relationships I love. My spouse. At best, me and Aubrey are signing up, putting rings on her finger, and committing to do our best to reflect that sort of committed love. I think of my kids. Like, there was not, before Elijah was around, I did not love Elijah. I didn't know him. God doesn't think like that. Like, even when Elijah was born, it took me, like, I don't know. The delivery was kind of intense. He's all bruised up. I'm like, this is parenting. This is what everybody raves about? Like, oh, gosh. And then he just sits there for 10 months. And then he gets jaundiced, and then I got to do all this work. It's like, and I tell all these young dads, I'm like, just so you know, it was like 11 months in before I started to hesed love my kid. (laughs) Like the best of relationships are conditional, committed, but conditional. What David showed towards Jonathan is what God and the person of Jesus shows towards us. It's hesed. It's a love that God wrote in ink before any of us were born, and he will follow through on his promise because he is full of steadfast hesed 
love. What's the gospel? It's that God has covenantal, gracious love for us. And David goes and gets him because of this Hesed love. What's the second thing the king does? The king has found us. Here's the second thing. The king has, next one, found us. Who is the hero of this story? It's David. Like I just picture, this guy's living in nowhere place. He, he's hearing rumblings of what's going on, and there's a knock at the door. The king's men are here. There is nothing but dread and despair coming from that moment. Like I think of all the people that I get to disciple, one of the easiest questions to sort of get at where their heart is with God is, if God was to come knock on your door right now, and you open up, what would be the picture, what would be his face and it's always like some sort of disappointment. I'm like, you don't get the gospel. That's not at all what the Bible paints for us. He's like happy to open the door and see you. And the king does the work to go and get Mephibosheth. Who does the work of your salvation? This is where maybe the most controversial statement you'll have to digest here and this week and the rest of your Christian life. How did you become a Christian? I'll tell you what I did. I went to a camp. My parents sent me. 18 years old. Girlfriend broke up with me. You don't need to know all the details. She's a horrible person. <laughs> I go to camp. I hear the gospel. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. That's the when and the how I became a Christian. As you dive into the Bible, the Bible does not give us that much credit for getting us to the point of salvation. It's more like Charles Spurgeon calls him the hound of heaven. He keeps coming, and he keeps coming, and he keeps coming. And at 18 years old, God took me and grabbed me, and I could not shake it, and he said, look at me. And I became a Christian at that moment. How does Mephibosheth get back into a relationship with the king? The king goes and gets him. And we've got a better king than David. David sent his men. Jesus comes by his spirit, and he woos us. And he knocks on our hearts and he keeps coming for us and keeps coming for us until we turn around. One of the most famous stories of the New Testament, the prodigal son. You got an older son who does everything you're supposed to do, although his heart is wicked towards God. And you got a younger son who does everything that a parent doesn't want to do. And his heart is also both wicked. And the younger son takes off because at least he's brave enough to show externally what's going on in his heart. And he goes and parties and squanders his entire inheritance. And what does the father, who is a picture of God, do? He says, while the son was still a far way off, he ran towards him. Why? Because our God pursues us. The king does the pursuit. Mephibosheth has David to thank and David alone. We have Jesus to thank and Jesus alone for the good news. What else do we get? The king will then carry us. What's the good news? That when God knocks on our door, in our addiction, in our brokenness, in our stupidity, in our sin, and like our crippled sinful nature is obvious, God doesn't give us a manual and say, I think page 17 might help you deal with this junk you're dealing with. In this story, the king sends people and they pick up the crippled Mephibosheth, and they bring him back to the king's layers. In the Bible, it says this, God does the work to carry us to salvation. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He carries us. My wife used to sing this beautiful song in Texas at our old church about this very story by a band named Leland. And here's the beginning part of this song 
about Mephibosheth. It says, wounded and forsaken, I was shattered by the fall, broken and forgotten, feeling lost and all alone, summoned by the king into the master's courts, and lifted by the Savior and cradled in his arms. How do we get to come back to Jesus? He picks us up into his arms and he brings us back. Mephibosheth, how did you get in the king's presence at his table? He carried me back. The good news is that God carries us back. My dad's favorite verse, he's like, this is what I want you to preach at my funeral if I get to do that. And you're going to be like, your dad is weird. He is. But <laughs> Romans 7 says this. Paul is sort of wrestling with, there's stuff I want to do that I just can't ever do it. I can't ever figure it out. And there's all the stuff I don't want to do, and I do all that stuff. And he's basically describing what it means to be human. If you're actually aware and look at a mirror long enough, you're like, why do I do the stuff I hate? And all this stuff that I know I should do, I don't ever do. Why, why, why? And his summary statement is, oh, wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death is how he describes this life apart from Jesus. Thanks be to God, but for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are crippled by the fall. We are wretched men and women, incapable of carrying ourselves to the table. So God has to go towards us and do the work and pick us up. Ephesians, the one that starts off, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. It goes on to talk about us being children of the devil. It, very bad news. And then it flips four verses in. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. What is Christianity? It's a bunch of crippled, broken, sinful, ungrateful, fill in the blank with whatever people that God goes towards and he makes us alive. He turns on our heart. He opens our eyes so that we can see him. That is Christianity in a nutshell. That is not what any other religion teaches, but that's what the Bible teaches. We have been made alive. We have been carried back to God. And now what do we get to do now that we've been forgiven? Like here's what, uh, just with a lot of guys I've discipled, they sort of camp out on their sin and the fact that Jesus forgave their sin which is huge. If you don't get that, you don't get Christianity. But so many guys don't have an imagination beyond the cross, meaning like, it's like, I'm terrible. Yeah, I know. Your wife told me, and you've told me. I get you. And I'm this, this, this. Yes, I know. But the cross, yeah, but I, and the cross. And it's like, they never get past. The cross simply brings us into the family. What is the picture the Bible wants us to have of what life with him is like, I think Mephibosheth gives it in the last verse, verse 13. Here is what the gospel invites us into. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Like, I don't know why you think Christianity is a good option. Like, if you're, what's the hope of the world that you're banking on? That guy that came to this first service who isn't a church person, what's the hope in your heart for everything? Like, what are you banking on? Here's what I'm banking on, that there is a good king who doesn't just want to forgive my sins. He wants to invite me to his table always. That is the gospel. Nothing better than that. Leland, the song, continues on with this. I was carried to the table, seated where I don't belong. I was carried to the table, swept away by his love. And I don't see my brokenness anymore. When I'm seated at the table of the Lord, I'm carried to the table, the table of the Lord. What is your hope in life and death? 
Yes, the cross matters eternally. But once you walk through the forgiveness that the cross offers, what are you hoping? There's a table with a king, and he's prepared a place for you and me. And not because we deserved it or we got up or we brought food to impress him. He carried us in our brokenness, in our guilt, in our fear, in our shame. He picked us up by his spirit. He did the work. And now we get to sit at the king's table now and forever. There is no better news in the world. Go try to find better news that the creator God that we have rebelled against, that we are in line of Adam, we should be separated from him forever. We're not. He comes for us, comes for us, comes for us, and sits us at the table. This is the most beautiful story in the Bible simply because it points to the even more beautiful story of Jesus, the perfect king, far better than David. If you're a Christian, if your faith is in Christ, all the junk that you bring into this equation, just know it's real and your sin is bad and you should be separate. But if you've really trusted in the gospel, it's all gone. And there's a seat and there's a king and he wants to enjoy the table with you and me forever. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us to hear the bad news for those of us that need to. Just know that there is nothing in us that could fix the problem of sin. That we are sinners by nature and by choice and everything we do is tainted somehow by the sin of others, the sin against us, but also to our shame and embarrassment the sin that we commit towards you and towards those around us. But God, thank you that the story does not end with the bad news, but you thread the good news throughout the entire story. And in this little chapter, in this book written thousands of years ago, you give us a beautiful picture of the gospel good news that for those that are crippled by the fall and on the wrong side of history, and are full of shame and guilt and fear. There is a king who is coming. He's coming for us. And he will not stop until he picks us up and brings us back. And some of us in this room have experienced that. I just pray that we rejoice yet again in a fresh way. For those of us in this room who would not agree with that good news or the assessment of the bad news, I pray that you would take away the veil that is blinding them. And God, help us now come to your table in this small, tiny picture of what eternity has in store. Let us enjoy the body and the blood of Christ once again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said.